Hello, you are listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast, and this is episode number six. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and today I'm talking about tips on how to teach mindfulness to, to children or to your kids. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to the Secular Buddhism Podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining. Secularbuddhism.com is my website and blog, and this is the podcast that goes along with it. The Secular Buddhism Podcast is produced every week and covers philosophical topics within Buddhism and secular humanism. Episodes 1 through 5 serve as a basic introduction to secular Buddhism and to general Buddhist concepts, so if you're new to the podcast, I highly recommend listening to the first five episodes in order. All episodes after that are meant to be individual topics that you can listen to in any order. I like to start the podcast with a piece of advice from Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama, when he says, do not try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you already are. Please keep this in mind as you listen and learn about the topics and concepts discussed in this podcast episode. And remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to share, write a review, or give it a rating. All right, well, let's jump into this week's topic. So what I want to talk about today is mindfulness, specifically mindfulness for kids. Um, I have a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-month-old. And the topic of mindfulness is something that has recently become... Uh, kind of a routine at night with my kids. And I wanted to share some of the tips and uh, things that have worked for us to start talking about mindfulness. And I, and I say mindfulness as a topic, not really as a word. Um, you know, my, my six-year-old doesn't know what the word mindfulness means. We don't talk about the word mindfulness, but we have specific routines or exercises that we've been doing that involve mindfulness. Um, with the ultimate goal of helping him to become mindful without necessarily telling him, hey, this is what mindfulness is, because young kids don't really get that. So a lot of this needs to be adapted based on the age of the children that you're going to be talking to or teaching. Um, but I think most of this stuff is is relevant for uh, kids of any age. So keep in mind that as I share this, my my son is six, and this was kind of tailored around him. My three-year-old is a little too young to really grasp any of this, but some of what we do here also works with her. Um, So at night, you know, we have these routines that we've developed. Meditation is one of them. And I was having this conversation with my brother on the phone last week and telling him a little bit about the things that we do. And he was very interested in in taking notes and, and finding out what works for us to start teaching mindfulness for our kids. And that made me think maybe I should do a podcast episode and talk a little bit about uh, tips and ways to teach mindfulness for kids. So remember, we've talked about mindfulness before, and the whole purpose of being mindful is is to uh, train ourselves, train the mind to become aware of things as they really are. Remember, our natural tendency is we take whatever is the way life is, and then we add meaning and stories and and, and we get lost in these stories and in the meaning that we create about things. And what we're trying to do with mindfulness is to just become aware of things as they are. And for kids, this can be pretty natural. 
but it's it's during the period of time that kids grow into adults that they really lose track of of just allowing things to be what they are, and then they start assigning meaning like we do as adults. So some of these things are just meant to increase that awareness and um, help them realize that the way that they naturally do things is much more mindful than the way we as adults sometimes do things. Um, there are four specific uh, topics or exercises that I like to do, and a lot of these are pretty new. I'm I'm testing these now and seeing what works, and I'm sure this will evolve and change over time. But I wanted to share what's working for me and with my with my kids. Uh, my six year old Raiko is very into meditation right now, and one of our routines at night for meditation is. Uh, it started out with almost like a game, you know. I wanted to say because uh, he and his little sister Noel, who's who's three, um, we sit down in. They each have their own bed. They share a room, and we'd sit down on the bed, and and then it was like a contest. Let's see who can sit still and quietly for thirty seconds. And I would set the timer on my watch, and they would sit there. And usually, she's the first one uh, at about that fifteen to twenty second mark who says, "Are we done? Are we done?" <laughs> and it's kind of become a little game to see who can last the longest. And she has lasted all the way up to sixty seconds, which. It's pretty impressive in my eyes for a three-year-old, um, but she's consistently reaching 30 seconds now, and now it's become a routine at night. She says, okay, let's meditate, and she'll sit down. She can last about 30 seconds, and then she'll lay down and, and, and lay there quietly while her brother is finishing his meditation, and um, nine out of ten times she'll fall asleep while she's laying there waiting for him. So it's kind of become a, a win-win for the whole nightly routine of getting the kids to bed. But what's really impressed me with Raiko, the six-year-old, is that starting at 60 seconds, this challenge of, oh, now can I do 100 seconds? And then he did that. And now can I do 200 seconds? Now can I do 300 seconds? And he's reached the point now where he can uh, quite easily sit there for 10 minutes, 10 entire minutes, um, 600 seconds. And what we do is he just sits there quietly and I have my timer on my watch. And when it hits 10 minutes, I just tap him and say, good job, you did it. And he's just so excited because to him it's a challenge and he was able to do it. And he loves knowing that it's not easy and that I always tell him most adults can't sit down for 10 minutes. And he, he just loves knowing that he can. Um, so that's, that's how he started to get into meditation uh, but really, we're just sitting there quietly. There's no specific thing that he's doing um, other than the only rule is if you open your eyes, then you're done. I'll stop the timer. Or if you say anything, if you, if you, you know, the moment you start talking, then it's over. And I stop the timer and I'll tell him this was your score. And it's happened several times where he'll say something or open his eyes and I'll say, he's done. And I'll say, no, I want to do it again. And I'll say, no, that was that was your shot tonight. We can try it again tomorrow and see if you beat tonight's record. And I think that's helped motivate his uh, determination to, to do this well and stay sitting there quietly. And then as he practices his skill of just sitting there and controlling his uh, desire to talk or his desire to open his eyes, I think that's bringing about um, the awareness that I'm hoping he'll get out of it, which is that 
there is a lot of control that can go into uh, our our habitual pattern. You know, the habit might be I want to open my eyes or the habit might be I want to start talking. And to be able to sit there and evaluate that and say, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to sit here quietly until my dad says the time is up, I think is a tremendous sense of uh, willpower that he's building up that's going to be helpful in so many other aspects of his life. So that's kind of how we have uh, approached meditation in our house with the kids. It's It consists of just sitting there quietly, and they really enjoy it. And even my three-year-old, you know, if she doesn't hit her 60 seconds, she kind of gets frustrated. She's like, oh, I want to do it again. And I usually let her try again because, you know, Reiko's going to be sitting there for a whole 10 minutes. So she'll try it until she can get her 60 seconds. And then she's really happy and proud of herself because she did 60 seconds. And then she lays down and goes right to sleep. Um, so that's how we do meditation. Uh, there are a few other exercises that I've started to incorporate that I have found to be very successful in helping to accomplish the overall goal of mindfulness in the first place, like I said, is to to become aware of things as they are. And from the Buddhist lens, you know, becoming aware of things as they are really consists of two major things that we're trying to teach. One is impermanence, that all things are impermanent. And the second is that all things are interdependent or connected. And impermanence, I think, starts to make more sense as we get older. It's kind of difficult for a child. Um, but the way we talk about that is uh, if we're outdoors, you know, we can sit for a minute and we'll do meditation just laying down and looking up at the clouds. And we'll talk about how you can look at the clouds. And if you look at them long enough, they come and they go. And the clouds that you were seeing five minutes ago aren't the same clouds that you're seeing now. And I usually try to compare that to not not necessarily thoughts, but to life. And I explain to my kids that in life, life is like clouds. And whatever life has in front of you right now, like looking up at the sky, whatever you see, that's what it is right now. But that's not what it will be. And that's not what it was because it's always changing. And you know, how well do they really get that? I don't know. And that's why I don't really dig too deeply right now into the concept of uh, impermanence, because I think that's a little harder to grasp. But interdependence has been a really fascinating topic to explore with my kids. And um, and there's been a, a really effective way to do that. And before I jump into interdependence, there's one more aspect of impermanence that I do discuss with my kids. And I think this is a, an easy way to convey the idea that uh, life is constantly changing or the things that are at one point are n- no longer. And that's using a bell. I have two bells in my house, uh, meditation bells. And uh, one of them, it's a little bowl with a wooden, uh, like a little wooden mallet that you use to hit it. And what I like to do, I do this when I teach meditation in general to adults, but um, or mindfulness to adults. But the idea here is you can take a bell, and this will work with any kind of bell, and you and you ring the bell, and you ask the kids to listen to the bell and raise your hand when you hear that it stops ringing. And as soon as you raise your hand, you can open your eyes. And this works really well when you have several uh, people in the room. Because what they'll discover is as they're listening intently to hear when the bell stops ringing and they think it stopped and they open their eyes and raise their hand, often they'll notice somebody else hasn't detected that. 
and it doesn't usually happen at the exact same time. One hand will go up, and then maybe one or two seconds later, another hand goes up. And I like to explain to them that the the nature of impermanence is that everything that has a beginning or that we would typically think this has a beginning or this has an end, when you listen to the bell, what you discover is what you may have thought was the was the beginning or the end of the sound may just be the end of the sound for you, but it's not necessarily the end of the sound for someone else yet. And if you really pay attention to this and listening to the sound of a bell, um, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly when it stopped. You know, you can pinpoint when for you it stopped, but you can't really pinpoint exactly when it actually stopped because it's it's different for people. Um, so, yeah, the ringing of the bell is another fun way to kind of just bring up the topic of impermanence. Uh, another one is the clouds, like I mentioned before. Those are two good ones for kids. Um, but the one that I've really focused more time to is the idea of interdependence. I think this is something that resonates well with kids and it makes sense. Um, so the way we talk about this, you know, I, I don't use the word interdependence. What I, the word I use with my kids is I, I tell them, did you know that everything is connected? And the way that I convey this, I'll say, um, this is usually we're sitting in bed either right before or right after meditating, usually before, cause sometimes my daughter's asleep after, um, but we'll be sitting there and I'll say, uh, right, go grab your pillow or grab a stuffed animal or just pick something in your room and he'll grab it. And, you know, we, I remember one time it was his pillow, his favorite pillow and he's holding his pillow. And I said, so I want you to, uh, learn to discover that everything, everything that you have connects you to someone. And he said, well, what do you mean? And, and he said, but I, nobody else has owned this pillow. This is just my pillow. And I said, I know, but let's look at the pillow. And it, his pillow has fabric, it's stitched, and it has a little print on the top, like a sailboat print. And I said, Reiko, I want you to look at your pillow and look at that print. Is that different fabric than the fabric of the pillow? And he said, yeah, that's not the same. And I said, so I want you to imagine, did your pillow grow on a tree or where did you, your pillow come from? And he thought about it for a second. And I think it's really important to allow them to make these connections on their own rather than telling them the answers. Um, so he thought about it for a second. He said, oh, somebody made it. And I said, yeah, somebody somewhere made this. And I said, so you're connected to whoever made it, right? And he said, oh, yeah, okay. So that's what it means that everything's connected? And I said, yeah, but let's explore this a little more. I said, whoever made it had to stitch it. And, you know, we have a sewing ma machine at home, and um, his mom does a lot of sewing. I said, mommy mommy stitches stuff and makes dance costumes. And and I said, do you think somebody used a sewing machine like like mommy has to make this pillow? And he said, yeah. They stitched the pillow. I can see all the stitching. And I said, yeah, well, where do you think that person got the sewing machine? And he said, um, maybe they bought it at the store. And I said, yeah, so they must have bought it from someone, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, now you're connected to the person who made the pillow and to the person who sold the sewing machine to the person who made the pillow. And he said, oh, wow, so it's two people? 
So I said, let's keep going with that. The sewing machine, did that grow on a tree? Do sewing machines grow on trees? Are they just out in the forest? Or how do we get sewing machines? And again, he thought about it for a second and realized, no, somebody made the sewing machine. And and I said, okay, we'll do what. So this process goes on, right? And I keep breaking it down. You know, where did the this uh, string come from? The components of the sewing machine. And what he kept discovering is everything would connect to someone else. And you know, we talked about the person who drove the sewing machine once it was completed to the store. The person who invented the uh, car. The person who uh, invented tires so that cars can drive and you can go on and on. This is a number ending process, but you just kind of pick the, 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 the bigger, more obvious parts of the process that kids are going to understand. And suddenly he just pauses and he's like, daddy, this pillow connects me to thousands and thousands of people. And I said, I know, isn't that awesome? And we usually sit here and we look at this pillow and we think that's just a pillow. I said, but it's not just a pillow. This little pillow connects you to so many people in so many countries and so many processes. All of these things happened so that you could just have this pillow right here on your bed. And then he picks up his pillow and he just hugs it. He's like, oh, I love this pillow. And it was just this moment of excitement for me because that's what you're trying to teach with interdependence is this understanding that we truly are interdependent and connected with everything and something as silly or not as silly, but something as simple as a pillow that you may never think of all of a sudden he saw it differently. And I don't think he'll ever see that pillow the same way again. And that was, that was a neat experience for me. So we continue that process. Everything is connected. And I'll say, Ryko, no, now grab your little toy. And we started the same process. He has a little dinosaur. He's way into dinosaurs. And he's just studying this dinosaur, and now he's breaking it down. And he's like, well, this has plastic, but it also has screws. And I said, yeah, do you think somebody, look look at those, do you think somebody put those on there, maybe using their hands? And he said, yeah, maybe. And I said, well, sometimes it's machines that do it. What if a machine did it? And without even thinking, he just said, well, but somebody made the machine. I was like, exactly. So then we were able to kind of explore the process of one of his toys for a little bit. And I like to do this every now and then. I'll just pick something random and say, Ryko, what does this connect you to? And then he'll study it and he'll think about it. And I've been very impressed with how much more in-depth his understanding is with interdependence. Without ever even using the word interdependence, now he he looks at things and studies them, and uh, sometimes he needs to be prompted by me to get him thinking. But he he can see things differently. He see thing. He he's he's learning to start to see things as being connected, and that's the whole point. That's the object of mindfulness: is that we can start to learn to see everything as interdependent. And I'm starting to see that with my six year old. Um. With my daughter, who's three, it's a little more difficult, but you can, you can, you know, you can still kind of talk about it and they get whatever they can get as they get older. It makes more sense. So I think it's important to not get caught up in thinking, how can I ensure that my three-year-old learns this or my four-year-old learns this? It, it may be that they don't until they're older. Uh, in my case, my six-year-old is really getting all of this. My th- three-year-old really isn't, and that's fine. 
Um, so everything is interconnected is how we talk about interdependence. Um, the third exercise that we've been doing is uh, a component to mindfulness is becoming very aware of our senses, being aware of things as they are, how we are just as we are. And the way to a good way to do this is to explore uh, sensations, your physical senses. Um, these are like sight, sound, smell, touch. Um, and the way we do this, um, I'll kind of talk about each one separately. And I don't do all of these at the same time at night. It's not like we go through all of these. You kind of do these throughout various times of the day. Usually at night, our, our routine for nighttime is we talk about everything is connected. Pick something and let's see how we're connected to it. Once that discussion is over, we do meditation. And that's really all we do at night. But at other times during the day or at random times, I like to bring awareness to their physical sensations. So with sight, um, this is kind of a new thing I started and I got this from my dad. My dad has for years had this habit when he comes over, he'll take one of the little toys of the kids and he'll just go hide it somewhere, somewhere obvious. Like um, he'll take a little plastic figurine and put it on one of the blinds and then see if anyone notices and nobody notices. So after a while he'll say, Hey, have you seen that little Batman? And then they're all like, huh? and they know the game has started. The kids know this. He does this with my kids and with my brother's kids. And it's a fun game. And, and it becomes this moment of awareness. Where is that little toy? And they, they know he hit it somewhere. So they start looking around and they're like, where is it? And it's a really fun game. Um, and then usually they're looking around in places that they wouldn't think to look. And that's where they find it. Like he's on top of the fridge or, uh, he's in the, on the vase where the flowers are. It's usually somewhere hidden, but somewhere obvious. So I've started to try to do this a little bit with my kids. And sometimes I'll just, when I'm playing with them, I'll take a little toy when they're not looking and I'll go hide it somewhere really obvious right in front of them. And then I'll ask them, Hey, where did that little, uh, Lego guy go? And they know as soon as I say that they look around and they're excited to start looking. And, and the object of this game is, uh, to start teaching them to look. That's really all it's about. What are, what are they looking for? What do you see that is right in plain sight, but you just don't see it? That's that's the object. Um, and then usually one of them will find it, and then we'll laugh, and I'll say, isn't that funny how sometimes the things that, we are lo- that we're looking for are right in front of us, but we just don't see them because we don't typically look? And that's about the extent of the lesson I'll give because, again, I don't think they really grasp it. But it's a it's an exercise and a routine that I plan on someday turning into a powerful lesson on uh, insight and on mindfulness. For now, it's just a, a little fun game and an exercise that we do. But that's what I do with sight. Um, with smell, something you can do that's fun is... Um, you know, maybe when they're sitting at the table or it's time to eat, you could pause and play a game where you say, okay, everybody close your eyes and then you bring out what they're going to eat or maybe it's an orange or just a random object and say, you're not allowed to touch it, but you can you can reach down or not reach down, but you can put your head down and smell and just see if they can smell based on their smell, decide what it is. And again, this it's really simple. It doesn't really do much other than set you up at some point for teaching them that they can become aware of obvious sensations that are there that we don't usually pay attention to. Um, You know, at dinner, it can be as simple as close your eyes. I want you to take some 
uh, whiffs and smell and see who can tell what we're having for dinner. And that exercise alone would start to train them to become more aware of what they are smelling. Again, it's, a, it's one of the senses that's there. And unless you're paying attention and using it, it it's just you don't really do that in, in everyday life. Um, so that's, that's one way to do smell. Sound, uh, sound, like I mentioned, the bell before is a fun one to play with. Something I like to do um, if we're just sitting there, and this one might be one I'll do at night, um, if you sit there and, and just listen and say, okay, we're going to play a game, guys. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to listen. And I want you to tell me, what do you hear? And you just sit there in complete silence. And then maybe, you know, someone will say, oh, I just heard a car drive by. Then you could develop that over time. Well, do you think that was a car or was it a truck or was it a semi? And you want to try to refine their ability to sense what they're sensing. So in this case, really hear what you're hearing. Um, and we live close to a, a bigger road that's not that busy, but it's, it's, it's a state highway. So sometimes it's a truck, sometimes it's a tractor, sometimes it's a semi, and they can start to tell the difference between the sounds. Um, but what you're trying to do is train them to become aware of what they are aware of. So uh, that's how we would do sounds. And then uh, touch, that's another fun game. You can just sit down and say, I'm going to put something in your hands, close your eyes. I want you to feel it and tell me what it is. This can be something as obvious as a stuffed animal. And I'll, you know, my kids love stuffed animals. So they have like 50 of them <laughs> and I'll take one and say, okay, I'm going to put this in your hands. You're not allowed to open your eyes, but just feel it and tell me which, which one is this. And they'll feel it and say, Oh, this is, you know, this is the rabbit. No, this is the puppy. Um, but again, what you're doing is training them to become aware of the senses, to become aware of awareness. That's the whole purpose of meditation or of mindfulness. So using sensations is a good way. It's a fun way. It's an easy way. And there's not a, a really deep lesson. You don't, at least not yet, you don't have to sit there and say, let me tell you what you're learning here. You don't have to do that. You just play and you're increasing their ability to use their senses. That's kind of the whole point. And at some point, it's a very powerful lesson when they're older and they understand and you can explain mindful living as being very aware of everything just as it is. And that includes seeing things as they are, smelling as it is, hearing things as they are. Um, you can kind of incorporate all that at some point. That's my plan, at least. Um, so those are the, the four main ways that I try to teach mindfulness to my kids. Um, the sound of a bell or clouds in the sky to discuss the concept of impermanence, um, playing the game of everything's connected. How are you connected to this and handing the, handing them an object? That's how we discuss interdependence. Um, and you can do this at dinner too. If you're going to have a meal, it's fun to sit down and say, okay, uh, where did this corn come from? And then you talk about that for a little bit. Where does corn come from? How do we get corn from the field to our table and discuss the whole process from the transportation to the machines that husk and just whatever you have to, you can do this with, with any kind of food, but it's, it's a moment to become very mindful of what you're about to eat and where it comes from and how it connects you to everyone and everything that made that process available for you to just sit there and eat corn. Um, interdependence I've found for me is 
perhaps one of the most powerful ways of being mindful is when we become mindful of how everything is so interdependent, the causes and conditions and the processes that are required for us to just do what we're doing, whether that's eating, watching TV, playing with a toy, like so much had to happen for this toy to be here. So much had to happen for this pillow to be here that I get to lay on. So much had to happen for this meal I'm about to eat. These are things you can discuss constantly with your kids and and this trains them to become very mindful of interdependence. Um, so yeah, those are the, the four things. Uh, sensations, that's another fun one. Meditation I talked about. Um, but I'd love to hear from you in the comments um, on the blog or on the website or on Facebook or wherever you're seeing this. Uh, if you're listening to it, maybe you can email me, noah at secularbuddhism.com. I'd love to hear what works for you. How do you teach mindfulness to your kids? And hopefully these tips and hints um, work for you as well as they're working for me. I found it to be very rewarding and very enjoyable to see this process unfolding with my own kids and to see them becoming uh, more mindful of life in general and more mindful uh, I guess more mindful just about everything. It's a, it's a really neat process. And it, I think it helps foster in them a sense of gratitude for everything because they realize that for everything to be happening the way it's happening, a lot had to go into that. And that's what mindfulness really teaches. So hopefully these tip, tips are good. And thank you for listening. And I look forward to talking to you guys again next time. Thanks. Thanks.